Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're off to the Green Mountain State to ask, what is a haunting? Our guest is perhaps better placed than most to answer the question. Jennifer McMahon is the author of nearly a dozen best-selling novels that each, in their own way, search for the haunting link between place and memory. Her new novel, The Drowning Kind, plums those same depths, and, and when you read it you'll understand that quite excellent wordplay. <laughs> As ever, I'll leave it to the author to summarise their story, but suffice to say that The Drowning Kind features all the ingredients for a classy piece of modern American gothic. It combines the tropes and must-haves of the genre, whilst remaining nonetheless original, eerie and nicely ambiguous. And it helps that it's set in Vermont, a state, as you'll hear, that's very close to my heart, but which is also creepy as hell because it's so perfect. White picket fences and beautiful rural landscapes abound, but they are teeming with legends of things that will do you harm if you're not careful. Jen and I talk a lot about how and why she uses Vermont so much in her fiction. If you're into local lore, then there's a lot for you to pick over, but if not, then luckily Jennifer also gives some serious insight into her writing craft, an element that I'm now realising I've slightly neglected in previous interviews. So yeah, hopefully I expect a little more of that going forward. But anyway, before I start boring on, grab your bathing suit, the water is lovely, but so cold and so deep. Let's talk scared. Hi Jennifer, welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. This is going to be so much fun. Well, we hope so. I mean, that's a nice positive start when people <laughs> say they're great. Um, where are we speaking to you from? Um, I am at my home in Montpelier, Vermont. It is the capital city of Vermont. I say city, even though we have a population of about 7,000. So it's it's a very small capital city. And we are here in Vermont at the tail end of winter, early spring. There's still snow on the ground and spots in my yard, but it's warming up. Spring is in the air. I, I saw my first crocus the other day and it made me feel very hopeful. Well, that sounds quite similar to my situation. I hinge my entire year on when I see the first bee of spring. Uh, and I saw a bumblebee today, so my, my mood has been lightened somewhat. Wonderful. Oh, I love bumblebees. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's about as whimsical as this show gets. It's all, it's all grimness and darkness from here. But yeah, my first <laughs> bumblebee, I'm happy so far. I'm glad you said you're in Vermont because it's very integral to your fiction. Um, as we'll get into, I've actually spent a fair bit of time in the state. I, I have found it to be a wholly cheery place to be. So I'm looking forward to finding out why it inspires so much dread and darkness in your work. <laughs> Specifically, you've got a new book out, The Drowning Kind, which was released yesterday, April 6th, by Gallery Books, I believe. Yes, indeed. Well, before we start the conversation, I think it's best that you give us some some synopsis of the story. What what can you tell us about The Drowning Kind? Sure. Um, well, The Drowning Kind has two storylines. It's got a present day storyline 
uh, in which Jackie, who is a social worker living on the West Coast out in Washington State, um, learns that her sister, Lexi, has mysteriously drowned in the swimming pool of the old family estate back in Vermont. Um, and Lexi has been struggling with mental illness for a while, and she and Jackie have kind of been out of touch. And so Jackie goes home. Jackie goes back to the, the old estate and starts trying to put the pieces together and figure out what happened to her sister and what her sister's life was like in the last months and weeks leading up to her death. And as she starts kind of going through her sister's things, she realizes that Lexi had been looking into the history of their family and the history of the place. And most importantly, maybe the history of the old spring-fed swimming pool that's behind the house. And that's a pool long rumored to heal the sick and maybe grant wishes. But Jackie soon realizes that maybe you have to be careful what you wish for. And then we've got another storyline kind of woven in that starts in 1929, in which we meet Ethel Monroe. And she's 37 and she is newly married. She got married a little later in life. And she's longing for a child. She and her husband love each other very much. And, you know, life is pretty perfect for them. But the one thing that's missing is a child and they've been unable to conceive. And one afternoon, her husband says, I have a surprise for you. This new, wonderful hotel, the Brandenburg Springs Hotel and Resort, has just opened up in Vermont. And we're going to go there for the weekend. And there are springs that are supposed to heal and and she feels a little silly, but she's tried everything else. So she goes to the springs and makes a wish. She gets down and she says, I wish for a child. And does she get the child? I'm not sure. I'm not going to go into that quite yet. <laughs> but yeah, she makes her wish. And then all kinds of crazy things happen. And that's kind of the intro to the novel. It's these two storylines back and forth. And, and a fun kind of fact about me is I am not a planner or an outliner. So I had no idea what was going on really in either storyline. And I certainly in the beginning had no idea how these two storylines were connected, which was really fun. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I also imagine that's quite terrifying. I mean, a number of your stories actually feature that device of having two layers of narrative, one in the present and one in the past. And in, in The Drowning Kind, it's it's particularly effective because it, it almost feels like they're two wings of the same house that are connected by this this pool. But you don't plan. So you just, do you start writing them knowing they're the same story? Are they two individual pieces of, of, of narrative that you then realize are linked? Um, no, I definitely knew that, no, they're the same story. Yeah, so I began The Drowning Kind with the story of Jackie and the and the pool. The whole thing kind of began with the the pool and the springs and the history of the springs. And so I started with the Jackie in the present day, and then I thought, well, I need some depth to this story. I need to go back and show, not just tell, because in the beginning I was sort of telling all these things that Jackie was discovering about the history. And I thought, well, what I really need to do is be showing all these things that she's telling and take us back and have a character who's back there. Um, so then I started coming up with the story of Ethel, but I wasn't sure how far these stories were going to be entwined until I got further along in the writing. And yeah, that's what's fun for me is not knowing, you know, I, I love not knowing. I never know quite what direction a story is going to take me in. And it's like going on a journey. I have no idea what's going to happen at the end, but it's always great fun. And every book has a share of surprises for sure. Yeah. So that sounds terrifying to me. I mean, that full, I, I'm trying to write um, a novel, my, my first novel at the moment, um, and I'm, I'm taking a, a weirdly similar 
uh, structural approach. I've got a narrative in the sort of in the fifties and one in the present day, and and there is one character who operates as an anchor across those two stories. But I'm finding it overwhelmingly daunting, like the complexity of of, of linking those two narratives together. So I can't imagine doing it and and not knowing how it's going to work or how it fits. That would terrify me. <laughs> it has its moments of terror of being terrifying. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do a lot of revisions, you know, and one thing that I always do, so I'll, I'll plod my way through the whole first draft. And, and if at any point during, you know, the process of writing the first draft, my agent or my family or a friend or anyone will ask me, what are you working on, Jennifer? I can honestly say to them, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I'm working on this story and it's got a creepy pool, but I'm really not sure what's happening. I, I think there's something in the pool, but I don't really know. I don't know if it's like a supernatural thing or if it's something that people are bringing to the pool. I don't know what's going on. So I have to write my way to the end to figure it out. And then once I've got that first draft, I sort of, I'm like, ah, okay, now I know where I'm going and I've got the bare bones. And every time after I finish a rough draft, I print the whole thing and then I take it chapter by chapter and lay it out on the floor of my house. And so, and then I start to kind of walk around and look and make notes on it. And only when I do that and sort of treat it as a big collage and start moving things around and getting a sense of the, it's sort of a bird's eye view of the whole picture. Then I start to truly understand it. And then I'll sit down and get completely like outliney and organized and making sure that everything makes sense and that there's no holes. And I'll actually, while it's on the floor of my house, I'll start moving chapters around and taking things out and putting in little pieces of paper where I know I need to add things. And that's been a part of my process since the first book, which was, this is my 10th book. So since book one, that's what I do with each, each and every book is I lay it out on the floor of the house and then I start to understand what it's truly about and what I need to do to fix it. Is this the infamous index card process? Because I, I was doing some research into you prior to this interview <laughs> and I found an interview that you did where you talked about this and there were images that you'd, you'd uploaded that show this this massive complex collage of index cards <laughs> and notes and and for the benefits of listeners because I, I know that quite a few of my listeners really enjoy hearing about the creative process behind these books and um, if it's all right by you i'll actually copy and put one of those images on the twitter release of this episode so that they can see it because it's quite a thing to behold Absolutely. Yeah, please do share. Um, so I use index cards throughout the process. I'll use index cards for brainstorming and kind of idea generating and when I get stuck. But the big most important thing I use them for is I do use them for outlining. So when I get to the point where that book is on the floor, I'll and I know what structure the book is going to take, then I'll take one index card per chapter and I'll just kind of write what's happening and I'll color code it by point of view and timeline. And on each index card, I'll take one chapter or scene and I'll write, you know, scene one, this happens. We, we, Jackie goes to the pool, scene two, we're back in 1929 and there's Ethel. Um, and then I'll write what, what she's doing. So on each index card is just a very brief description. And then by the time I get to the end, I've got my book on the floor with all the notes, but I've also got my handy dandy stack of index cards. And that's just so easy to flip through and understand the structure of my novel. And it's cool when I, because I'm working in different timelines and different points of view, using the different colored index cards, I can color code everything and I can get like a, a quick view, like, ah, I've got way too many Ethel chapters here and not enough Jackie chapters and the balance isn't right. Um, so it's, it's super helpful. Just hearing about this is a kind of balm to my OCD soul. 
<laughs> it just it sounds so beautifully neat and tidy because I've got this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of sm- trying to smash at a novel, and I've got this Excel document that is color coded, but it's growing and it's it's massive. So I I may go the the analog non digital index card route in future. It sounds much more wholesome and calming. So yeah, so if nothing else, I will take that from this interview. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I highly recommend it. And I really believe that it uses like a different part of your brain when you're working with analog tools like that. There's something really satisfying about it. And then you've got these index cards and, you know, sometimes I'll stick them up on the wall. Sometimes, you know, so I'll have this like map of index cards up on the wall above me as I'm working on the revisions, but sometimes they'll just stay in a pile next to my desk and I'll go through them as I'm working chapter by chapter. I think I picked it up from reading a, I think I read an article years ago about screenwriters doing it. And I looked at images and I was like, oh, that makes sense. I love that. That is a brilliant thing. And so I just started giving it a try. And the index cards are the way to go. Well, I mean, it clearly works for you. You write intricately plotted novels and you've had 10 of them. So it's definitely working. But we've jumped deep into the process there. So let's come back out and let's talk about the content of The Drowning Kind. I've read about haunted houses. I've read about haunted hotels. I've read about haunted everything. I can't recall ever coming across a haunted pool. When I first saw it, I thought, God, that that sounds a little bit trivial. But this is far from a yuppie swimming pool. This is a a kind of natural, creepy watering hole that's been co-opted into a swimming pool behind this house. Where on earth did that idea come from? I mean, please tell me there's an actual Vermont legend that inspired the book. (laughs) Even better. The book was completely inspired by a childhood memory. Um, oh, wow. I right. was, okay. Yeah. So it was inspired by an actual pool that I went to as a kid. So when I was growing up, I was raised by my grandmother, who was a psychiatrist, and she would take us on these family trips every summer. And one summer we went off and we went down to Maryland to visit a family friend, a friend of hers who was also a psychiatrist. And he lived in this gorgeous stone mansion with his family. And behind the house was a large swimming pool with black, black water, completely lined with stone. And there were kind of slimy weeds growing along the edges. And the water was just so black. And I put my foot in and it was so cold. And the man who owned the pool said it was bottomless. I'm a little kid. I'm looking at this water and I'm thinking, no way am I going to go in there. This is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And I could feel the cold coming off of it. And I was just completely creeped out. And then this little boy who lived there looked at me and stuck his tongue out and called me a chicken and jumped in the water. And no way was I going to let some little boy call me a chicken. So, of course, I jumped into the water with him. And I've never been in water so cold. And the entire time I was in that water, I was absolutely terrified. I couldn't see what was down there. And the whole time I was in there, I was sure that I could feel things kind of brushing against my legs, sort of reaching for me. And I was so scared and I stayed in as long as I could. And then I got out and I didn't, didn't swim in it again. But the, the memory of that pool has stayed with me my whole life. And I've always wanted to put it in a story and kind of treat the pool as its own character and give it sort of a, a chance to tell me its secrets, you know? And that's what I did. And I, I, I've been thinking about it for years and I've been kind of toying with it and writing my way around it. And I'd write little bits of it and then put it away. Um, I one day said, this is it. I'm going to write my pool book. It was actually, I was with a bunch of family at my cousin's house and I was watching my daughter and her cousin swimming in my cousin's pool. 
And I was watching them swim and I was remembering that old swimming pool and asking other members of my family if they'd ever been to grandma's friend's house in Maryland and no one really knew what I was talking about. Um, but all of that sort of clicked and I started thinking about family secrets and remembering the creepy swimming pool. And that's when I sat down and started writing it. Wow. Right. It's a real primal fear that you've carried with you then into into adulthood. That's excellent. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm still, who isn't really scared of when you're in water that's that dark and deep and it's, it's creepy. You don't know what's down there, right? It's scary. <laughs> there is actually, where, where I live in the north of England, in Lancashire, there is actually a very local legend we have, a kind of folk tale, a folk character in this specific part of the world. And it's, it's a character called Jenny Greenteeth. I know about Jenny Greenteeth. I actually learned about her when I was researching this book. <laughs> it's wonderful. So for listeners who don't know, Je- Jenny Greenteeth is a sometimes green-skinned, but not always, um, kind of water hag from old English folklore who who lives in water and yanks unsuspecting children or weirdly elderly people into deep dark water and drowns them. The, the, the myth, interestingly, has become so... It's so in, embedded in, in the local folklore that now we actually often call algae or, or other kind of vegetation on a pool Jenny Green Teeth and stuff like that because it can be so dangerous. Really? Yeah. Um, but it, it does seem that there is this kind of universal myth that we tell kids to keep them away from water, that there are Absolutely. things living in there. So that's why I wondered if it was a, a Vermont version, but it's cool that it came actually from your uh, your own youth. Yeah, came just a memory from my own childhood. But yeah, we do. I mean, we do make up these stories to try to to try to keep our kids safe, right? Don't go near the water because who knows what might be lurking down there. There's a great um, old PSA video from the 80s that everyone of my generation remembers. Um, you, you can find it on YouTube. Lots of people <laughs> of my age will say it's one of the most formative terrors of their youth because this very short vid- advert that was put on TV that shows this hooded grim reaper type figure lurking near near water and, oh. and basically drowning children and this was put on at tea time you know to uh to terrify kids well after they came home from school yeah it's, it's a real iconic wow. piece of footage for british people of my age it sounds really upsetting <laughs> that would keep me away from the water <laughs> you've written about serial killers and monsters and bunny suited kidnappers one of my favorites yes indeed <laughs> and and we can d- debate a lot about what the nature of the the entity in the pool in the drowning kind is but i can't help but think of you and i think a lot of people do as first and foremost a writer of ghost stories so mm-hmm. how, how does that sit with you i love that um, not all of my books have ghosts in them, but I, I love that. Again, I always cringe, honestly, when people ask what kind of books I write, because I don't feel like they fit, fit neatly into one genre. Um, I've been told I write psychological suspense, sometimes with, super ma- with supernatural elements. Um, you know, I have people who say that what I'm writing is, is horror. I don't know that I wouldn't call it but, uh, horror is such a broadly defined thing. My books definitely have horror elements, but I know I have friends who read a lot of horror and then they read my books and they're like, eh, it's not quite horror-y enough. But, you know, is Shirley Jackson horror? I think so. I mean, there's one of the things that has just come up again and again on this show is what a 
largely redundant term horror is in in marketing mm-hmm. terms i mean I, I there's a reason i called the show talking scared rather than talking horror or something like that because i'm, I'm mm-hmm. interested in fear i'm not really interested in generic boundaries as such i mean some of the people i've spoken to uh, about books that would never ever be put in a horror section in a in a bookshop you know but but they are scary um so so yeah i mean I, i've made this point ad infinitum by now so I, I don't need to make it again but yeah for, for me your books are always about if not ghosts at least they're about haunting i would say mm-hmm. let's talk about the drowning kind first of all do you consider it a ghost story i mean we won't go too much into what lurks in the pool because that is too much of a revelation for people but do you think it qualifies as a ghost or a ghost story or is it something different that is a really hard question. Um, I guess I would call it a ghost story. I don't really want to back that up with too much information. For people <laughs> that haven't read it, so, um, I, you know, and that brings us to like, what is a ghost and what is haunting? And one of the things, you know, you pointed out earlier that in not all of my books, but most of my books, I do the back and forth through time thing. You know, like in The Drowning Kind, I've got the, the storyline that's back in 1929, kind of showing the history of the place. And I have this belief that places hold memories and can hold the memories of everything that came before. And maybe that's its own type of haunting. And maybe ghosts are carried through in that way. Um, So there's that. There's that to consider in all of this. Um, As far as what's in the water, is is the water itself a ghostly presence? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's definitely, there's supernatural stuff going on with the water, but yeah, I don't really want to give away too much, but I, I would consider it. I would, I would, I would put it in that category. How about you? What do you think? Well, I, cause I was writing the questions and I tend to often theme these interviews subconsciously around individual facets of a writer's career and I was going Mm -hmm. to be like okay ghost 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 and then it it was only when I was writing the question I realized it's not I suppose a tried and tested ghost story in that way because Mm -hmm. the thing in the water you quite carefully never really delineate what it is Mm -hmm. or and I I also what I liked about it is I got the sense that we never actually saw the full extent of its powers either Mm -hmm. and that's not Mm -hmm. to say anything is anticlimactic because you know stuff goes down a lot in this story but it felt like there was a a potential for malignancy that went beyond what we see. And I, I enjoyed that. But yeah, I I went into it thinking, oh, ghost story, and then started to change my mind a little bit. I would mm-hmm. say, though, it is definitely a novel that's about the, the nature of haunting. I mean, there's one character at one point sort of thinks to herself, what's the difference between a ghost and a memory? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That question could serve as the, the fundamental question that underpins, well, all of your fiction that I've read and from, from reading about other books, you know, most of your work as a whole. And, and the lingering past seems to have a special place in your fiction. Like, there's a great detail that, so, so a, a child has previously died in this pool. Um, and when the protagonist finds, she finds a puzzle that belonged to that child. And when she opens it, there's drawings and writing from the dead child written when she was alive in the roof of that, in, sorry, in the lid of that box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was a really lovely metaphor for, for a different kind of haunting, a different kind of 
spectral presence. Yeah, exactly. And also, I, I have fun playing with the, the concept of, you know, so I've got these characters in the house and Jackie and Lexi, when they're little girls, they're growing up with the, the idea of their dead aunt, Rita, who drowned in the pool. And they're surrounded by her things, by her toys and her games and then her books that have her name written in it. And they've grown up with these stories about her. And doesn't that kind of almost bring her to life to them? So she's very a very vivid part of their childhood, even though she's been dead a long time. Even if she's not really in that water, they're imagining that they see her and they're teasing each other. And, you know, Lexi's teasing Jackie. If you open your eyes when you're underwater, you'll open them and you'll see her. You'll see little Rita. She's down there. And is she down there or is it just the, you know, their imaginations bringing her to life because they're so surrounded with her because it's just palpable, her presence. So, yeah, I totally agree with what you said. And then the same thing happens again with a, a self-portrait of Lexi that, that basically serves as a ghostly presence, um, which I found was one of the creepier details in the book. The idea of this, this picture looking at you from across the room all the time and serving as essentially like an analogue of the person it who it, who it represents I thought but that that creeped me out yeah yeah that creeped me out a little when I was writing it <laughs> I, yeah. every now and then I get to these scenes and I'm writing and I'm kind of looking over my shoulder thinking feeling like something's watching me but you know there was a scene when um Jackie goes back into the room and sees the portrait and she'd forgotten it was there and she is startled and I got startled <laughs> you quite cleverly write about the portrait as Lexi sometimes you don't say the Lexi's painting or the, you will just say Lexi is watching her from across mm -hmm. the room and it kind of imprints in the reader's mind the idea that this is more than a painting this is is a kind of form of ghost almost a form mm -hmm. of presence um mm -hmm. yeah and I, I enjoyed that detail it's probably the for me the creepiest detail of the book I find portraits creepy at the best of times there's oh, the amount of times I've slept in a strange house or a hotel and if, if there's a portrait on the wall there is something about a face looking at you uh, while oh, you yeah. sleep that is inherently unnerving. It is, especially when it's got you know the eyes that look like they're following you wherever you go. Oh, that that, that freaks me out. Yeah. <laughs> and then so and then add into that the mix of like the characters in the book just being completely you know wrecked and overcome with grief, and they're all drinking, and anything can happen. There's a lot of drinking in this. <laughs> there is a lot of drinking. I actually toned down some of the drinking. There was even more drinking. <laughs> yeah. To change tact. Well, no, actually not to change tact. It's, it's about the lingering history. I was going to think it's, it's in the same sort of theme. One of my all-time favourite tropes in horror is the, the idea that kind of shock horror, it's all happened before. I love scenes where people find scrapbooks and they find newspaper articles. You know, I, I, there's nothing I love more in a horror film than the library montage where they sit with the microfiche. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that stuff. Yes, I love that. <laughs> well, well, you do a nice little bit of that in, in The Drowning Kind because um, obviously there's a lot of documentation and a lot of, of false history that you construct. Um, and that's as well as the actual historical part of the narrative. So you do get this sense of stuff has happened, you know, back through history. But there's there's one bit where there is a record of early settlers finding the springs years mm -hmm. before, you know, hotels were built or houses were built. And they find this rock with a warning etched on it that when it's translated, just says, beware. And I wondered, are we to believe that the darkness in the pool is something ancient and primeval? And if so, do you think it's tied into... 
is it in your mind? Is it tied into the land? Is it tied into the native presence? You know, all those things that make for great American Gothic. Yeah. Um, in my mind, immediately when I started writing about this pool, I wasn't sure what was in there, but I had the strong sense that whatever was in there had been there for a very long time, like since the pool was around, possibly. Do I know where it came from exactly? No. I actually, one of the things that I did when I was working on this was I tried to write some scenes from the point of view of the pool itself. And I tried to get the pool to tell me what was in there and what oh, was going wow, okay. on. Tell, sort of like, tell me your origin story. Where do you come from? What do you want? And I never got the answers I was looking for, but I, I learned a few clues. And one of the clues was that it had been there a very long time and went way, way back. And that's, that's when I ended up writing that, you know, the little snippet of history that she finds in the book of the, the early settlers discovering the, the sign, the little carved sign in stone that says, beware. There's nothing better than that, because I think there's something about America more than any other country in the world, well, more than any other country that dabbles in mainstream horror, shall we say. I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm being a little bit imperialist there, I suppose. But, you know, <laughs> what, I'm basically, what I'm basically saying is compared to the rest of the Western horror tradition, I think that the American landmass has such a depth of, of scale for that kind of horror. Because it was, as far as the the white man was concerned, it was alien for so long. It was there for so long before us that it feels like there could be all sorts that we haven't found yet that is just waiting to wreak havoc that the natives know about and can deal with. You know, there's a lot of that in, in, in American Gothic fictions, isn't there, that Native Americans are more more equipped to deal with this stuff, whether it's the Wendigo mm -hmm. or whatever. And I just, I just love that trope that the colonies were built and we were just not prepared for the stuff we were going to find. Exactly. And I mean, everything is just wild and new and terrifying, you know? Like I try to imagine what it must have been like going to a whole new place, completely untamed, unmapped. You have no idea what you're going to find. Hearing new sounds you've never heard being so cold. <laughs> I mean, face it, New England is freezing cold. Um, and just trying to survive the winters and getting through and, and trying to come to grips with what might be out there, you know, Oof. gives yeah. me the creeps just thinking about it. I love it. That wilderness. Yeah, the wilderness and just the old legends and the idea that, you know, who knows what's out there? Who knows what could be in that water? I've kind of purposely wrangled the conversation around to geography there because I want to talk about Vermont because for a start, it's a state that doesn't get, doesn't get enough love. I think, I think, well, because of the existence of Stephen King, we think of mm -hmm. Maine as the, the, the focal point for new England horror. And then after that, you get Massachusetts, then you probably get upstate New York, Vermont and Connecticut and New Hampshire. They don't get enough love. Now, I think almost the entirety of your fiction is set in Vermont. Am I right? Most of it, yes. Right. Are you native to the state? I am not. I'm a native New Englander. Um, right. I grew up in Connecticut, so I grew up about four hours south of here in a suburb um, that is very, very not Vermont. Um, I grew up in a suburb just west of Hartford, Connecticut. Um and I came up to Vermont in, let's see, 1989 to go to college. And 
never really left. I did leave for bits and pieces here and there. I, I lived in Portland, Oregon for a year, and I lived in Kentucky for a little while. And I, I kept sort of setting out and going other places, but I always came back to Vermont because it felt like home. But And I think that because, you know, a native to a native Vermonter, I am not a native Vermonter. I am a, they will tell me that I am a flatlander. I did not grow up here. And I feel like have I, I feel like it sort of has given me that outsider status. Like I might pick up on things here that I might not had I grown up here. I might notice things that I might not if it was just normal to my everyday existence from the time I could, you know, from from my earliest awareness. Um, yeah, and I think that Vermont. One of the things I absolutely love. I love Vermont with all my soul, and it feels like home. And I, it really is a special place. We don't have billboards. You know, we have one area code for our phones. We're the, the land of cows and Ben and Jerry's ice cream and maple syrup and granite quarries and now craft beer. Um, and we've got farmer's markets and we've got Bernie. We've got progressive politics. Um, and we have a very rural landscape. I think it was up until sometime in the 70s, there were more cows than people in the state of Vermont. And we've just got beautiful, like little villages that look like they're out of a Norman Rockwell painting scattered here and there. But it's a changing landscape and it, it can feel very idyllic, the green mountains and the ski slopes and kind of the quaint New England villages. Um, but we definitely have our share of problems too. And one of the things that I absolutely love is to kind of take that idyllic image and turn it on its head and show what might be lurking underneath. Yes, we have the beautiful green mountains and yes, we might have a lovely hotel with beautiful a beautiful spring-fed pool, but what might be in that water? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about why you make Vermont so dark. I mean, well, actually, no, that's too far. It's not dark because you never make it sound like a sinister place. You make mm -hmm. it sound like a lovely place with sinister enclaves or sinister experiences or, you know, it, yeah, Vermont always in your work sounds like a lovely place to be, just not perhaps the exact square footage that the story is taking place in. Um, <laughs> But, but you write about these kooky small towns. As you say, they've got that Norman Rockwell, that New England veneer of perfection, mm -hmm. and they hide something much darker. So Brandenburg, where the drowning kind is set, is, is fictional, I believe. I've done my research to the best yes. of my ability. Yep. I think the villages of kind of London and Ashford and West Hall from your most recent novels are also fictional. Mm-hmm. I, I thought you were from Vermont. I was going to say, do they stem from some ur village, rather, of your childhood memory? Obviously, they don't. Where then do they stem from? Is, is it just a reflection of reality? Or are you taking the idealised Vermont? Mm, that's a good question. Probably bits and pieces of both. I've, I've lived in many different places sort of all in the same area, you know, the central, north central Vermont area, but I've lived in small towns and I've lived in, and now I live in the capital, Montpelier, um, and I've lived in Barrie and I've lived in sort of all over this little area of Vermont and I visit Vermont a lot and I spend a lot of times walking around in the small towns and trying to explore all the little secret pockets and the little villages. And when I'm creating a town for my books, I try to base that on my real experiences, you know, and I'll try to spend time in the town that I'm, I'm not necessarily basing each town on a real town. It's sort of an amalgamation of different towns. And I will spend time in towns that I feel like are similar to that town when I'm working on a book. And I'll take little details and weave them into the story. Um, another thing that I do when I'm working on a story is I'll, I'll make maps 
like in this book, I, um, I made a map of Brandenburg in the present day and then back in 1929, sort of showing what the village looked like and what stores were where and you know, where the hotel was and how do you get to the hotel from the center of town. And then in the present day, what it, what it looks like and what's the same. That's one of the things that fascinates me about setting a book in two time frames like this is looking at, yes, what's changed, but also looking at what's the same. Like the water is the same. The pool has been, is, is different now in the present day. It's been made a little bigger and it's turned, been turned into a swimming pool behind a house as opposed to a much smaller pool behind a hotel. But there are other things that are the same, you know, the, the church in the center of, and there's still the gen, there's still a general store in the center of town and sort of the downtown, the structural downtown has stayed the same. And some things have carried on and some things have changed. And I, I really like looking into that. Yeah, I, I have to draw maps as well because I'm just not a very good visualist. So I have to know exactly where everyone is at any one time. Yeah, I, I'm a big map drawer and I, I'm a terrible artist. So my maps are not the not the best, but they totally work for me. And I also do a map of the house of Sparrowcrest. So I had a map of Sparrowcrest and a map of the grounds around Sparrowcrest and then a map of the town. And yeah, I'd be lost without my maps. I love my maps maps are important otherwise i'll screw up and i'll say and then she took a left and then i'll go back and be like no she would have taken a right oh and, and the entire thing comes that. unraveled yeah. And, yeah yes exactly and i don't like that <laughs> um have you never been ever been um tempted to do the kind of castle rock route and create your own sort of spooky capital or your, your spooky small town that you can populate with with these these legends and ghost stories i have you know I've, I've thought about it I thought it would be fun and thought that it might be fun in some of my books to mention stories from other books but I just haven't done it yet uh, I just haven't done it yet I don't know I'm not sure that I will but we'll see <laughs> when I wrote my very first book um, promise not to tell years and years ago my the first published book in my first draft it was set in a real town it was set in the town I was living in and when I had my first draft out and I had the town and I had everything, I looked at it and I thought, I can't do this. I've got to change it because everyone in town is going to kill me. <laughs> like everyone from like the, the postmaster to the guy who ran the little store to the fire chief, everyone was going to be looking for themselves in the book and they were going to be insulted and upset. And yeah, so I had to, ch I completely changed it. <laughs> and I realized from that point on that I had to create a little fictional universe sort of based based in the real universe, but I had to switch things up enough so that people wouldn't necessarily recognize it. Well, I mean, you certainly make Brandenburg creepy. I mean, there's all the stuff downtown with the the bakery and the general um, store and all that is, is a lovely place to be. But the minute you get away from that, it is like an eerie, eerie setting. I mean, there's a if you don't mind, I'm going to read a very short paragraph here where you describe a journey in the historical narrative where sure. the, the, the the couple Edith and her husband are trying to find the hotel and you write quote there were no houses up here only trees and rocks low stone walls that had toppled in places the air got cooler as the trees grew thicker seemed to almost overtake the road the whole time we were traveling we thought we must be lost there, there couldn't possibly be a luxurious hotel out here we did not pass another motorist or the coach from the hotel, which was good because the road was far too narrow for two cars. Now, that's taken from the, the part of the novel set in the 1920s. Yet, from my experience of rural Vermont, not much has changed. So, <laughs> so to talk very briefly about my time there, I, I spent the best part of a year in North America just 
literally greyhounding around working on farms for board and lodgings. I, I, I went to New England for the same reason in this podcast. I love horror and I was like, I want to go and find Stephen King. But I, I found myself in Vermont at, in a place called Fairley, which was barely even a hamlet. It was a, a wide place in the road, <laughs> just on, very quite close to the border with, with New Hampshire and about 90 miles north of Concord, New Hampshire. And I remember when I, I, I flew over there and I got I got the Greyhound from Boston and I got to Concord and I met the guy who I was staying with and he owned a bar in Concord and he drove every day. He drove 90 miles there and back, which I found unfathomable in my tiny country, but seems to be quite normal for him. <laughs> yeah. And, and I get in this pickup truck and he starts taking me to his house, which is this, this farm, like 40 acre farm out in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. And that journey that you're describing Edith taking to the hotel is the exact journey I took to this house with a stranger who I was sure was about to murder me at any moment. I'm like, this is frightening now. I'm driving into the middle of nowhere with someone I don't know, and there is no <laughs> one around. And and I think it's the quirk of the state and of that part of the world that something that is we all think of as really, really bucolic and beautiful and and you know calm and quiet that carries with it its own terror because once you get away from the cities and you get into that part of the world you suddenly feel so vulnerable oh absolutely i completely agree with you there are a lot of places in vermont still that don't have cell phone reception you know i can drive around the state and i'll just i won't have any cell phone reception you're far away from people you're all you see is trees you can't call for help on your phone if you run out of gas or if you're having car trouble and have to walk down the street and knock on the door of that cabin way back in the woods, who knows what might happen, right? <laughs> it's it's creepy. I, and I'm a person who's very scared by by nature all the time. I frighten very easily. I'm like the biggest scaredy cat ever. I'm the person who like screams the loudest in the horror movies and who has to sleep with all the lights on when I'm reading a scary book. Um, so I'm scared all the time anyway, and put me out in the woods with no streetlights in sight and my phone dead, and I'm just a basket case. So it's actually very inspiring. <laughs> it doesn't take much to inspire me. I just go for a walk in the woods, and I've come back with all kinds of ideas and my heart racing. I was going to say, if you have those fears and you live where you live, I can see why you write dark fiction. Yeah. You were never going yeah. to really write jaunty comedies, were you? That was always going to happen. No, no, I wasn't. Yeah, so my my... Very first published novel was actually the fourth novel I wrote, and the other, the previous three. So I was living in a, a cabin way back in the woods when I was writing my my early fiction. Um, and my first three, I'd been to an MFA program, and I was trying to write sort of like more literary. I was trying to write what I thought that other people expected me to write, I guess is the best way yeah. to describe it. And it was only when I stepped back and thought about it and I went to write to start book four because nothing had happened with the first three books and I knew they weren't very good. And I asked myself the question that I should have asked myself from the very beginning, which is what's the book I most want to read? And, and the answer came back loud and clear, a ghost story. And that was what I was meant to be writing. That was what I wanted to write all along. So I sat down to write my ghost story. And I was like, I am in the perfect place to write this ghost story because here I am living out in the woods and I am scared all the time. And I'm just going to weave in all these details into the story and it's going to be good. And this is going to be the one. And, and it was. And yeah, the rest is history. I've been writing creepy stuff ever since. <laughs> so you mentioned before, though, that Vermont and, and that part of the world is so rich in folklore and in legend. 
And as I've already admitted to you, I, I haven't read enough of your fiction. So forgive me if I'm asking a question now that there is already an answer to. But have you ever written about the Bennington Triangle? I have not written about the Bennington Triangle. I am completely fascinated by the Bennington Triangle. And every year when it's warm enough to actually go like hiking and exploring like during the summer and early fall I tell myself that I'm going to go explore Glastonbury Mountain which is kind of at the heart of the the Bennington Triangle mystery um but I'm too scared I can't get up the nerve to go <laughs> maybe this year will be the one um but for, yeah for those who very... don't know get, get, tell my listeners about the Bennington Triangle because I'm no expert I'm just aware of it it's an area of Vermont where there have been a series of mysterious disappearances. And I think going back to like the 50s, maybe earlier, people will like go for walks in the woods and just never come back again. And I think a hunter disappeared and no one can explain. I, I've heard, you know, I have one friend who believes that it's Bigfoot and is pretty convinced that there is a Bigfoot type creature up in the woods. Some people say maybe there's a portal to another world up on, there's an old place called Glastonbury Mountain. And I, I feel like I've read that there was a, you know, like a settlement up there at one point. There might've even been an old hotel. I, I have not been up there because I'm just too scared, but I need to get over my fears and get out my compass and my GPS and put on my hiking things and tell everyone where I'm going and leave a very clear map <laughs> and, and make sure that I arrange to have, you know to send for, for a rescue party to come and find me if I don't come back <laughs> and go check it yeah. out. I mean, I, there are cool stories about this. On top of the Glassman Mountain, there's a, I believe there's a rock and one of those disappearances was that someone stepped on the, someone was watching them and when their partner stepped on the rock, he blinked out of sight and was never seen again or something like that. Ooh. That one sounds a little fanciful, but some other ones where, where people have literally just disappeared, walked around the corner on a trail and the group they're with have never seen them again. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It is a fascinating place. If ever I make it back to Vermont, which I hope I will, I will let you know. We can go together. I would like that very much. Yes. Yeah. I need someone, someone a little braver than me to go with. Well, that's not me, <laughs> but we'll, 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 we'll do it we'll, anyway. Yeah. We'll get through it together. <laughs> yeah. My other favorite piece of folklore that is specific to Vermont is the witch windows. Oh yes. So yes, for people yes, don't yes. know, this is windows set at a weird angle in people's houses because people thought that a witch wouldn't be able to get through it on their broomstick they, they, they when you see them they're like escher drawings they, they you kind of think your brain's not working for a minute yeah they kind of follow the the lines of the eaves of the house you know yeah. and they're tucked in so they're, they're rectangular they're like window shaped but they're they're a completely wrong angle for a traditional mm. window and yeah i hadn't heard about witch windows until i came to vermont and i had a friend who lived in a house with a witch window and she said oh well that's the witch window and I just love that. <laughs> That's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, the, the house I stayed in had one. And I was like, what the hell is that? And then when he explained to me, I was like, oh, okay, I, I'm on board. But I mean, coming back to the book then, speaking of architectural oddities, Sparrow Crest, which is the house in The Drowning Kind, mm -hmm. is a real kind of gothic pile. I mean, Jax's dad at one point refers to it as Dracula's castle. In fact, he refers to mm -hmm. it as that throughout the novel. Um, it's described as a, quote, damp, dark, sprawling place made of stone and huge hand-hewn beams. Um, and it's described as a great stone fortress. And I, I was going to say an unusually old-world description for a relatively modern building which after all is built in the 30s but that prompted a couple of questions in in england or in britain a a 90 year old house 
I don't think, would be considered old enough to be a repository for ghosts or a haunting. You know, because that's nothing. What, 90 years? That's that's the, like, the prefab down the road. <laughs> um, but then I, I thought about, you know, you mentioned Shirley Jackson. I thought about Hill House in what, that famous quote that says, you know, has been standing for 80 years holding darkness within. And your previous novel, The Invited, has a haunted house that's in the process of being built. Mm-hmm. I wonder, is that something that interests you, that idea of modern spaces being haunted? as opposed to if 90 years can qualify as modern. But do you know what I mean? The idea that this is not some some old castle on the hill. It's a modern place that looks like that. Absolutely. I, I don't think, you know, I assume that just about any place that's older than 100 years must be haunted. Um, <laughs> but I am, I, you know, like I was saying earlier, I think that places can hold the memories and kind of the echoes of everything that's happened in them. Um, So a place doesn't have to be 90 years old or even 50 years old to hold on to those memories and echoes. You know, if there's a a house that was built 10 years ago and something terrible takes place there, then I think that the house sort of absorbs that energy and holds on to that, the memory of that, that happening in some way, and it's going to continue to echo in some way. Um, So yeah, that is something I'm really intrigued by and fascinated by. And in my last book, The Invited, I, I wanted to write a haunted house book. My agent and editor at the time really were pushing me. They're like, oh, we want to hear, we want to see the Jennifer McMahon take on a haunted house book. And I thought, oh, there are so many great haunted house books out there. What do I have to contribute to this? How could I do it differently? And I started thinking about it. And I, you know, and then this idea hit me, well, what if instead of moving into a haunted house, I have characters who actually decide to build a haunted house? And then that, that got me excited. And I started thinking, well, how, how do you build a haunted house? And then I was off and running and trying to write this book. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that, trying to figure out how, what, what exactly is it that makes a place haunted? Is it the objects that you bring into it? Is it the things that happen in it? Is it what the people are carrying with them into the space? Or is it all of the above? You know, and I, I think all of that definitely works its way in. Yeah, I, I think that's a particularly American take on, on a haunting. In Britain, we, we've never quite divorced ghosts from the feudal system. Do you know what I mean? It's always like, <laughs> oh, you know, mm-hmm. Baron of Somerset, you know, who who fell off his horse in twelve the year twelve thirty, and and like he still rides around shouting at ramblers. Whereas in in America, I think, well, in North America, not just the US, I think haunting has taken on that that psychogeographic angle because of the requirements of yet you have to populate relatively new buildings with ghosts because you don't necessarily have the old ones you know Mm -hmm. and the 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 invited reminded me very much of something like Anne River Siddons the house next door in that a haunting doesn't have to be a century old it can be something you've brought with you that you can't even quite pin down where it came from Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah To, to finish off do you have a favorite ghost story oh boy I have a lot of favorite ghost stories um you know, Haunting of Hill House is still a favorite, even, you know, it's, I love Shirley Jackson dearly. And Shirley Jackson actually lived in Vermont. She lived in North Bennington, Vermont. And if you kind of read the lottery and read all her fiction, you can sort of almost see the village of North Bennington mm. come to life there. Um, gosh, other ghost stories. There are so many good ones. There are so many good ones. I, 
this isn't really a ghost story, but you know a story that I reread several times while I was working on this book is The Monkey's Paw. Okay. It's, it's not a ghost story at all, but it's it's like a, the whole be careful what you wish for concept and has the, one of the most terrifying endings. I don't, I don't like it at all. <laughs> when you hear the knock at the door and you don't ever get to see who's behind the door. Oh, gives me the creeps big time. Yeah, I mean, that that story is probably the urtext for the idea of once you show the scary thing, it loses its potency. Yep. That story will last till the end of time because you, 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 you're never quite sure what was the other side of that door. You think you know, but you're never quite sure. Yeah, I can actually, now you've mentioned that, I can see how that ties in beautifully to The Drowning Kind. Yeah. That, that makes I, perfect sense. I think I was probably about ooh, 11 or 12 years old when I first read it. And it's one of those stories I find myself going back to again and again. I just, I absolutely love it. I think it's brilliant and wonderful. And I, and it's a perfect example of the, of not, of what you don't show. Exactly. Because, yeah. and there's so much you don't show, you know, like when the, the guy first comes forward with the, with the monkey's paw and brings it to the family, he doesn't tell exactly, he said that he made his three wishes, but he never tells what happened, but you can tell it's bad. Yeah, and, completely. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you strike me as someone who has always got an iron in the fire, who's always like working on the next idea because your books come out kind of quite fast. Can you tell us what's next for you? Sure. Yeah, I actually just finished um, my next book. Well, I don't know if it's finished, finished, but it's in the very final stages. Um, it doesn't have a title yet, but it is a book that kind of explores the theme of monsters and monstrousness. And it's set in the present day and also back in 1978. And the 1978 storyline takes place in a on the grounds of a private small private psychiatric hospital in Vermont. Well, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited at this. You know, I, I grew up in the 70s as a child of a psychiatrist grandmother, and things were very different in the 70s. Um, you know, we had a lot of her patients would come and be house guests at our house and were just fixtures in our lives. There weren't the boundaries and, and things that we have today. Um, that inspired things somewhat and my love of, of monster movies and monster stories and, you know, my growing up with the, the old universal monster movies, that's definitely inspired the story too. Awesome. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I look forward very much to reading that. I, I love a, a monster myself. And the psych, my, my mum was a psychiatric nurse uh, ah. and she, she, she worked in a lot of buildings that, that hadn't, even though it was the 80s and the, well, the 70s and the 80s, th these buildings still look like something from the 1890s. You know what I mean? They they were old Victorian institutions. Um, yeah. And some of the stories she has to tell, like chill the blood, like supernatural oh, yeah. stories. And my, my mum has absolutely no time or truck or imagination, to be honest, for that kind of thing. But she's got a a handful of stories that one day will, will work their way into a book that I write because they're just too ripe to waste. Oh, that's wonderful. And and talk about haunted places and places that could hold memories and, the, you know, imagine everything that goes on in those buildings. And even yeah. if they're not that old, yeah. Oof. Yeah. Well, that seems a good place to segue into my final closing questions. If that's okay by you, it's just Sounds a quick Q&A that I throw at each person. Question one, what was your gateway to horror? My gateway to horror. Um, 
Well, I did love those, you know, those old Universal monster movies when I was a kid. I kind of grew up with them, and I, I loved the whole concept of monsters and the otherness and the idea that you could be a werewolf or a vampire, or there could be a werewolf or a vampire nearby, and you wouldn't even know it. You know, I loved that. <laughs> and I actually, I remember getting a book out of the library all about werewolves, and it had a, a spell to become a werewolf in it. And I actually went out into the woods and did the spell. It involved going out into the woods in the full moon and lighting a candle and saying supposedly magical words. And I was so disappointed when I woke up and nothing happened, and I hadn't turned into a werewolf that I know of. I'm going to say, because... You know, sometimes people don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I did tell my brother that I, yeah, I tried to traumatize my brother and tell him that I, I actually had done the spell and become a werewolf and he better watch out. Um, and then I just, I, you know, I loved all those 70s horror films, The Exorcist, The Omens, Rosemary, Rosemary's Baby and The Wicker Man. Um, and the first thing that I remember reading that scared the crap out of me was I took my mom's copy of the Amityville Horror from her bookshelf. And I was probably about nine years old and it completely freaked me out. And the thing that upset me the most about it was it said all over it that it was a true story, Yeah, you know? And that was sort of like what I think what got me hooked on the whole idea of a haunted house and a place being evil and just the flies and the red room and Jody the pig. And it terrified me. And, and of course I, I learned at a young age too, that I don't just like to be scared, but I like to share that fear with others. So I took that <laughs> copy of the Amityville horror to a sleepover with a bunch of friends and read the scariest bits and had everyone screaming and crying and running downstairs for their mom. And I kind of ruined the sleepover and I wasn't invited back, but <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about the Amityville horror is it just actually, it simply doesn't matter if it's true or not, because it's just a great story. Yeah. There's far too much made of whether it's true or not. You know, like it's scary either way. Yeah. No, it was terrifying. It really, it really upset me. And it was around that time too that I picked up The Shining from her bookshelf. And I remember hiding under the covers with a flashlight reading that. And I actually had to stop because I got too frightened. And I didn't read it in its entirety until I was an adult. Yeah. That is, that is kind of like a textbook 70s induction into horror. So yeah. Yeah. Ticked all the, all the boxes. Um, quite a good link to the next question. If you could recommend one book for my listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, I'm going to go with one of my very favorite books. Um, we have always lived in the castle by Shirley Jackson. A lot of people know haunting of Hill house and the lottery and some of her other short stories, but some people have not read. We have always lived in the castle and it's one of my very favorite of her books and one of my very favorite books, period. First of all, I love the character Mary Cat Blackwood. She is just the best character in the universe. I absolutely love her. I love that she's unreliable. I love that she believes in magic and the little things she does, the burying things in the yard and the nailing the book to a tree to try to protect them. I absolutely love that. I believe and she believes words have magic powers. And I just I feel like Shirley Jackson does this amazing, she has this amazing gift like building the sense of isolation and the sense of otherness, uh, you know, of the, the two girls and their uncle living in this house versus what's going on in the village and the way that she portrays the people in town and the rest of the world sort of as us against them and the way the residents are kind of portrayed as almost evil or dangerous and how the sisters live outside the village and the norms of the village and and I just love the slow reveal of what really happened to the rest of the family. And I just think it's a brilliant book. Yeah, it is. It's one that a lot of um, my guests have, have mentioned. That, that I think, for a lot of people, more than Hill House, is the one that's kept its potency. 
there's, there's a certain generation of female gothic horror writers who I think that is right there in the bedrock of their sensibility. Yeah, it's it's a good one. And you know, and I, when I talk to people, some people don't know it or have missed it somehow. And if you haven't read it, go out and read it now. And if you have read it, pick it up and reread it. It's one of those things that I pick up new things when I reread it. It's great. I read it at university and not since. So I've only got a very kind of scant memory of it. So I need to read it again, really. So I, I may just try and do that this weekend if I can find some time. Uh, question three, if you could give me a piece of advice for a fledgling author, what would it be? Oh, it would be the piece of advice that dawned on me when I sat down to write that book number four. Write the book you most want to read. Write the story you most want to read. The story that that you really want to read but isn't out there yet. Write your story. Yeah, that is good advice. I think there's a lot of people, understandably, who who look at things and think, I'm going to write like that. And they don't realize that by the time they finish their book and you know, fingers crossed, public, uh, got it into an agent, etc. The, the, the zeitgeist will have moved on. Exactly. I, uh, it's, it's something I've had to really bear in mind. So thank you. And my last question, this should be a good one, considering the things we've talked about. What truly scares you? Oh, so many things truly scare me. I, I actually keep a, a list of fears on my book. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a hard copy of it and it's on my computer. I have an ongoing list of fears so that I never run out of things to write about. But I think at the very top of the list is demons. Demons, especially the idea of demonic possession, that scares the crap out of me. I actually have this idea for a a possession book that I've been toying with, and I keep sort of picking it up and writing a little bit, but I'll get too scared and I'll put it away. So I don't know if that book will ever get written, but hopefully one day if I get brave enough. Have you ever read Sarah Grand's Come Closer? I was just going to say that's one of my favorite books. I, yes, it's wonderful. That's one of my favorite possession books. It's so good and so unsettling. Oh, yeah, it's good. I read it quite recently at the recommendation of people who I respect and it it blew me away, but it it wasn't a pleasant experience. I, I found it very, very frightening. And it's interesting you say that because you, if I were to answer my own question, what scares me? My yeah, two, what scares you? My two primal fears are either rabies. Don't know why. Rabies? No idea why. There is no rabies in my country, but the thought of it terrifies me. I, 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 was, I was bitten by a dog um, about this time last year. As I say, no rabies in this country, but I spent about six weeks convinced I was going to die. Um, wow. And secondly, it's stuff to do with possession and demons. I don't believe in it at all. But something about the thought of it and, and, and the way it's tied into psychology and the way that it could be mental illness, but it would have the same effect either way. I just mm-hmm, think it's such mm-hmm. a frightening concept. It, yeah, it really bothers me. So we are very much on the same page with that one. It's very scary. And then there's the whole like Rosemary's Baby idea that other people could be in on it. And yeah. You know, and are you losing your mind? And Or is it is it real? Oh, it's scary stuff. Very scary stuff. Yeah, indeed. Well, what a beautiful way to finish a conversation. Mutual terror. Um, (laughs) All I can say is the best of luck with the book. I mean, I'm sure it'll be a massive hit, all your books are. And thank you very, very much for talking scared. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I'm 
am still a little shocked to hear that Jen writes her stories without doing the intricate plotting first. I mean, it amazes me that anyone can make that work, to be honest, but her stories are so dependent on pulling together different, disparate plot lines that it's incredible she doesn't end up with a knotted mess by the end. But she doesn't. They're all clean and tidy and neatly cut off at the loose ends. The Drowning Kind is no different. It pulls itself together into a satisfying read that will scratch your Shirley Jackson New England Gothic itch. Yeah, and it sounds like her index cards are the way to go. As mentioned, I will stick a link in the show notes that takes to a great interview with Jen in which she talks more in depth about her creative process. And, and there's some photos of these hugely elaborate systems she has in place. Not really sure that offering photos of index cards as a boon is the, the reward that I think it is. But if you're into that sort of thing, do have a look. I find it fascinating. Let's face it, anything that helps you cut through the morass of anxiety over plot is to be celebrated. I really enjoyed talking about New England and Vermont with Jennifer, in particular the law of the state. At times I think she probably wanted me to get off my hobby horse and ask her more about her book. But, you know, why host your own podcast if not to egotistically ensure you get a chance to tell someone who lives in Vermont all about their own state? Yeah, sorry though, it's only because I have lovely memories of being there and it's Quite rare that I get the chance to discuss it with someone who has used it so effectively in their fiction. I'll say it again, not enough love for Vermont. There is life and horror outside Maine. The Bennington Triangle, for example. So, I mentioned it, but I've got to give you a, a little bit more info, because it really is one of those fascinating mysteries, and I'm surprised more people haven't used it in their stories, to be honest. If you aren't familiar with it, then immediately dash to Wikipedia. Go on, I'll... I'll wait. You're back? Well, let me simply repeat what you've just read. The Bennington Triangle was named, actually, by an author, Joseph A. Citro, who is actually someone I should definitely get on this show. He is, after all, known as the Ghostmaster General. The area is mostly wilderness surrounding the Glastonbury Mountain that Jennifer mentioned. And it's odd, actually, as Glastonbury in the UK is also a spooky place. It's known for the nearby music festival, but the town itself is centre of a whole host of legends and odd goings on and crystal shops. That, it's that kind of kooky place. So yeah, there's a strange synchronicity that its Vermont namesake is also the focal point for oddness. Anyway, Vermont's Bennington Triangle has seen many disappearances and more than a few murders over the last 75 years. Do research this, it's a great deep dive. But to get your spooky juices flowing, my favourite story from the area, and this is a heavily edited down version of this story, it features the 68-year-old James E. Tedford, who was riding a Greyhound bus through the area in 1949. A number of witnesses on the bus say that James was still clearly in his seat before the last stop in, you guessed it, Bennington. Yet, when the vehicle reached its destination, he was nowhere to be seen. But his luggage and a map he was using were still on board. According to the story, the bus had not stopped since James was last seen and spoken to by his fellow passengers. And he was never, ever seen again. Now, I've travelled all around the US by Greyhound bus, including in Vermont, and they are unsettling ways to get around sometimes. Late at night, you're sitting in your seat, surrounded by strangers who are often from the quirkier end of the spectrum, shall we say. You know, 
weird shit goes down on Greyhound buses, but James's story may be the strangest, and it catches my imagination. I, I'm not sure I'd be able to get on a bus on the way to Bennington without wondering if I'll make it. Are these disappearances Bigfoot? Aliens? A tribe of serial-killing, hills-have-eyes types deep in the woods? Who knows, but none of that explains James E. Tedford, and I can only surmise it comes down to A, a portal to another dimension, or B, unobservant witnesses. You decide. Even better, if you're local to Vermont, or if you've ever visited the Bennington Triangle and survived, then tell me about it. The email address is talkingscaredpod at gmail.com, and I'm ever-present on Twitter, just lurking for your love, at talkscaredpod. We've reached a steady state with listener numbers, um, and we're rapidly accelerating towards that first proper milestone of 5,000 downloads. So, thank you all. But with the risk of having to return to my day job looming, I would love to continue doing this show. So I really want to make that jump to the next tier of audience. If you can, help out by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help, so please do. Uh, And if you like the show, help others find out about it. Share, tell a friend. Nothing gives me joy like a quote retweet. Trust me though, the show is getting bigger and bigger. In the next few weeks, I'll give you some huge names. We've got Jeff Vandermeer, we've got Josh Malaman, and the Queen herself, Tanara Reevedu. Next week's guest is none other than Danielle Trasoni, whose novel The Ancestor came out to huge acclaim in 2020, and it's now ready for paperback release. But until then, swim carefully, avoid diving or heavy petting, and don't pee in the water. Read good books, and remember... It's good to be scared.